1 John 5, showing how the second commandment is now uh, looked at through the lens of who Jesus is and what he came to do. But as we've been working through the Ten Commandments, it's, I found this a, a helpful way to conceive of them. Right? We live in a, in a world that we, we are concerned about our rights, right? what I deserve, um, because I'm me. <laughs> and the Ten Commandments has been, been described as Israel's Bill of Rights, only they don't protect Israel's rights. They, they lay out what God is owed and what Israel's neighbor is owed. So it's a bill of rights for others, right? It's here's what God expects uh, and how to love him, and here's what God expects and how to love, his, love our neighbor. Is that better? Thanks. And so let's read. I'm going to reread the second commandment in, in 1 John chapter 5. And we'll meditate on this together. All right. This is the word of our God. It says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is on the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. And 1 John 5, verses 20 and 21. And we know that the Son of God has come. And has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. And this is God's word. He has spoken to us today in love. Let's, let's pray. Our Father and our God, we thank you for the gift of Jesus, that you do not leave us to our own imaginations to figure out what you're like. Uh, You've sent your son and spoken to us by your son, who is the exact imprint of your nature, so that in him we might see you, hear you, and know you. And so I pray you you would show us the importance of the second commandment today, and that your steadfast eternal love would keep us from idols. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the challenges of reading the second commandment in our context is that most of you do not have carved images that you're bowing down to. I'm saying most because I could be wrong, (laughs) right? Of some kind of conception of who God is, what he's like, and he's portrayed as something in creation, right? A bird. Um, When I was in the jungles of Madagascar, right, it was these totem pole sticks things with zebu, like cow skulls, that they would use to as part of their worship to communicate to their ancestors and hoping their ancestors would give, a, give them a good word with their God. And their village had burned down, so they'd ask for the church to come help. So it tells you how effective the whole thing is. <laughs> and so one of the things I found helpful getting ready for this sermon was um, 
I came across an interview between a British atheist who was wrestling with faith. He says, I don't believe in God, but I wish there was a God. Right? This guy's name is Marcus Brigstock, and he wrote a book called The God Caller. But this is what he says in his book. I wish there was a God and that this God would exist for now and all time. I wish to be fully conscious of God and more importantly that he would be fully conscious of me. I wish for God to be powerful, infinitely wise, kind, loving, fair, and when necessary, willing to carry out painful corrections on my fellow human beings. <laughs> He's a comedian. <laughs> right? What's interesting is, is in a conversation with the pastor, the way he was processing faith, he says, here's what I want. Here's what I imagine and wish were true, which sounds an awful lot like the God of the Bible. But he says, I can't see him. And therefore, since I can't see him, I can't trust him. And so that, I think, helps us wade into the second commandment because the reality of the second commandment is saying, do not imagine God on your own terms. And then to add to that, bow down and worship and serve this conception of God that you imagine and and then carve because God is jealous. He's a jealous God. Um, Earlier in Deuteronomy, it says he's a consuming fire describing God's jealousy. Right? So you could put it this way. God is jealous to the point of zealously caring what you think about him and how you think about him and how you imagine him to be. Right? And so you think about this. You know what? You know what jealousy feels like. Jealousy is that feeling in the pit of your stomach, uh, that, that intense protectiveness mixed with a fiery passion, right? You see something and say, I need to protect that relationship. That's what the second commandment is saying about God. He is protecting his relationship with his people. Therefore, keep the commandment because he is jealous and he, he will notice, he will see. Right? I mean, so the idea is you can provoke God's jealousy when you construct images of God. Uh, what we prefer rather than as he actually is, right? The consuming fire who is jealous for his people. And so with that introduction, let's look more closely at the second commandment. And you'll also see then how the second commandment includes a promise, or at least implies one, uh, something better than we can imagine. And so what does this commandment teach, right? For Israel, it's pretty simple. Uh, Don't take a piece of wood with great skill, like carve something out, making it an animal, and then bow down and worship it and say it's Yahweh, or, or Baal, or Molech, or any of these other gods around them. Right? It's don't make the invisible God visible through any means uh, on earth, right? In the heavens and the earth, and the waters beneath. Right? So fish are prohibited too. Right? And so... But I think it also is, is what it's going after here is saying it's don't make a visible image and use that to worship other gods, right? This is Israel's story. This is just getting into it. They're going to screw this up over and over and over again <laughs> because they're human and they, they, they are not satisfied with God telling them what he's like. They want to see, right? They want to see, see with their eyes. And so... 
if each commandment can be rephrased with its opposite, uh, I think you can rephrase the second commandment to say, you shall love God as he has revealed himself through his word and through his actions. Right? And don't add or take away. Right? So this is what made Israel unique. God spoke to them. That's the end of Deuteronomy 4. They heard God's voice. They didn't see him. They didn't have a visible picture. Right? They didn't have whatever your mind can conceive. Right? It wasn't like a visible human being talking from the mountain. They just saw, they just saw the mountain fire, thunder, lightning. Right? It was a terrifying experience. And because they didn't see God, they were tempted and gave into that temptation over and over again to carve something to worship. Right? And so the golden calf, of course, is, the, is what this is calling back to. So when, it, when the second commandment says, you shall not bow down to them, and I'm going to visit the iniquity of the fathers on the, of, on the children to the third and fourth generation, right? That's, that's a hyperlink. Uh, that's a callback to the story of the golden calf when God says, this is what my character is like. Right? And if you remember what Israel's sin was, right? Moses was up on the mountain for 40 days uh, for a long time, and everyone below is like, well, I don't know what happened to him. Aaron, make us a God, right? Make us gods who will go before us. Aaron says, okay, and magically a golden calf pops out, or at least that's how he tells the story. Um, And he says to them, literally, behold your gods who brought you out of the land of Egypt, right? So they look at this golden calf, this metal sculpture, and says, this thing is a visible image of what the Lord has done for you. This is who, what he looks like, right? So on the one hand, it's like, okay, one, you just said you weren't going to do that <laughs> a couple chapters before. And two, this is the sin underneath the sin. Before they made a metal version of God, they had a mental image of God. And they imagined the Lord to be what they wanted him to be based on their, their way of understanding the spiritual world, right? And the, the shocking thing is for them is their imagination turned out to look just like the way their neighbors believed. A golden calf, bull worship, that was Egyptian, that was Canaanite, uh, had to do with fertility and, and things like that. And so God got jealous. He got angry. Um, he said, Moses, I'm going to start over with you. Forget these guys. And Moses graciously intercedes for them um, and prays for them. But the idea is, right, humans should not have the audacity to say, I know what God is like, and then carve something. Right? To compare God to a lifeless metal image because God alone has the right to make images of himself. Right? So that should ring a bell. Right? Where has God made images of himself? Right? We're all looking at him, right? human beings. It's, it's page one. Let us make man in our own image, male and female. He created them after his own image and likeness. He created them. Right? They were designed to reflect God's glory, to show the world what he was like, um, to reflect his character, his person, by obeying his word. So his words were supposed to accurately reflect and image what God is like. God has already made an image. You shouldn't have to carve anything, right? So that's, that's one argument. 
Right? They're, they are God's image bearers. So they should keep God's commandments, and in doing so, they'll look like they're God. Number two, you can follow this logic with me. If, if Israel makes, uses their imagination to construct a metal or wooden carving of God, um, if they imagine God wrong, not only are they ticking God off and offending him, um, but they're sending really mixed messages to their neighbors. They're falling way short of their call to be, to be a light, to be, to be wondrously weird in the world. Because what made them unique is they didn't have physical representations of Yahweh. That was part of their mission. Go be wondrously weird. And part of the way being wondrously weird that would get comment from your neighbors is to say, we do not have any images that we use in our worship to bow down. Right? We don't have pictures of our God, to be clear. Right? And what Israel is supposed to be able to say to their neighbors is, I don't know what God looks like. He's a spirit. He doesn't have a body like us. Um, but we do have a beautiful story of rescue and redemption that shows us what God is like. We were slaves in Egypt. And he brought us out and brought us to this place. And he forgave us through the blood of the lamb. And, right, he, um, and then he spoke to us at Mount Sinai and says, here's how you live in relationship with me. That is, that is the image they were supposed to trust. God's words. Right? Go be wondrously and mysteriously weird. But you're committed not to images of your own making, but you're committed to being ruled by God's word. Not your own conception of what this God is like. All right, so that's the second reason to keep this commandment. A third reason was uh, to not make idols, right? God alone has the right to make images of himself. He's done that with Israel. Um, their idolatry is going to kill their witness, their, their testimony in the world. They're not, their neighbors aren't going to get to know God as he is if they corrupt that image. The third one, they have an incomparable experience with the living God. Right? Exodus 2.24. Here's, here's what God is like. During those many days when the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help, their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham and with Isaac and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Right? See, what Israel already had was a testimony that the Lord sees them, and that mattered more than what they see. Uh, he sees their suffering. He knows, and that, that's a language of intimate, personal uh, relationship Right? It was an incomparable, visible image of what God is like in his work of redemption for them. And so the argument is, don't bring the living God down into your world to represent him with a dead, lifeless image. Right? Because if God can see and if God can hear and God can act in the world, what's the message being sent if, if you have this lifeless wooden carving, right? That, that have ears but can't hear, eyes but can't see, hands that can't feel, feet but they can't walk, and a mouth that is silent. Right? That's the complete opposite of who God is. 
the God who hears, sees, and knows, he's living and active. And so that is part of the conception of why we should not make images, because it's going to fall short of, of the God who cannot be compared to anything at all, all of creation. Right? So that's Israel, and that's their world. What are we seeing so far that, that we, we need to wrestle with? Um, the, the second commandment is making worship completely God-centered and completely focused on God's words. It's an auditory experience first before it's a visual experience. So they did have a visual experience of his word on Mount Sinai. Right? And so I think one of the lessons we can take from that is our sanctified imaginations are to be governed by God's word, not by what we come up with. I mean, that was fantastically illustrated by the little boys. I think God's like this. That's the history of the world. We all think, yeah, God's like this. He looks like this. No, the God alone has the right to tell us how to worship, how to get to know him. In the same way that your spouse alone has the right to tell you how to relate to them. Because it's a personal relationship. Right. Let's, let's pull on some of these other threads. Right, in the commandment, it's saying, do not make stuff up about God. You are actually told three different things about God. Uh, right? We're told what God is like. He's a jealous God. And so, don't you want God to be jealous? It's terrifying, for sure. <laughs> but on the one hand, it is saying that God's affections for his people are that passionate and personal. He's saying, I want you to forsake all others, right? So if, you, if you're out eating in a restaurant and you saw a husband and wife spending time together and the husband just passively ignores the way his wife is getting way too intimate with another man, right? The thing you would immediately assume about that marriage is it's on its way out. There's no, there's no desire to protect the relationship. The husband isn't intervening. See, if there's no jealousy, if God is not jealous, that means his passion for his people, right? It would be just like the husband who ignores, ignores his wife as she does whatever she wants. Right? We need a jealous God <laughs> to come after us, to say this is what is good for you, even as we're afraid of a jealous God because we know we haven't been faithful. Right? And so, in your imagination, did you come up with God as jealous? Or just, right? It also says in, in the text that uh, he is a just God when it lays out that God will visit the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. And this is one of those hard sayings in the Old Testament, right? Because to our ears, it sounds like God is punishing innocent children for what their dad did generations ago. This is something I'm continually wrestling with, but here's, here's what I found helpful. Do you know in Genesis, we already have an image of how this works out? Um, in Genesis, Abraham deceived. Right? He lied, told the, told the Egyptians, hey, this, this is not my wife, she's my sister. He did that to save his own skin. Next generation, Isaac. He does the same thing. He lies to save his own skin and pretends like his wife is his sister. 
Next generation. Jacob deceives his father to get the blessing that he was owed. Right? So Isaac's acting like his father. Jacob is acting like his grandfather. And of course, the culmination of all that then is the fourth generation with Joseph and Joseph's brothers. And they deceive their father using the blood of an animal to tell their father that Joseph, the beloved son, is dead. Even though they sold him into slavery, they lied. Right? And so you have this portrait. Here's how God is working with each generation. They're acting just like their father Abraham. Right? Their iniquity is still at work. And in these particular actions, that their, their failure to obey, <laughs> to tell the truth, uh, would be an expression of hatred. That's, that's the language used here. So on the one hand, you have children willingly choosing to imitate the sins of their fathers. They are those who hate this God. Um, and so the, this, this commandment comes with a warning that if, if we have false views of God and what he requires of us, that's going to affect the next generation and the generation after that. Right? When, when Abraham lied about his wife, he didn't conceive about his was that great-grandson um, and great-grandsons, I should say, uh, lying, acting just like him. It became a whole totally different animal. Right? And so this commandment is saying protect the worship of God. Don't let it get corrupted from generation to generation. Right? It's the same way today. Do you understand that? That uh, a father could say to his son, I can't believe the Bible because it tells the story of, of a divine cosmic child abuse. Right? That God the Father would punish the son. I just can't believe in a God like that. To which we would say, I too don't believe in a God like that. <laughs> um, but when that son absorbs what his father tells him, and then that son then tells his children what he believes about religion, and so on and so on, you can see how it doesn't take much to just completely come off the rails. Now, the, the, the true story of the gospel is God the Father planned redemption. God the Son willingly chose to give himself up for us on the cross in submission to his Father. And the Holy Spirit is jealous for you so much that he has hunted you down and made you ready and willing from now on to live for Jesus. He's, he's persuaded you to, to embrace the gospel. Right? The story of the Bible is that God jealously fights to own his people by grace and grace alone. But any misunderstanding of that story of the Bible tends to get passed down to our children. And so in the second commandment, you're hearing God saying, yeah, idolatry will bring judgment for each generation that rejects me. Um, and idolatry in particular is, um, it's corrupting. There's a power to it. Because what you believe about God shapes how you believe and so Israel, the golden calf, it doesn't seem like that big of a deal. You get to the prophets, Israel is worshiping idols and images, and all of a sudden they're killing their children, offering them in sacrifice to Molech because their whole view of God has changed. Right. So God is just. That's part of what this commandment is teaching us. Do you, do you have a conception of God who will hold us accountable 
for the ways we hate him. Um, the third thing we, we learn is he's immensely and overwhelmingly gracious, right? He shows steadfast love to the thousandth generation of those who love him and keep his commandments. Uh, it's the direct opposite of the, the phrase before, and you're meant to compare um, the magnitude of mercy to the short version of God's justice, right? You're supposed to see that God is, if God was going to lean in one particular direction, his desire is to show mercy to his people, steadfast love. Mercy looms large. And if that is true, God's mercy is available to anyone who loves him and keeps his commandments in any generation. And you see that in Genesis as well, right? I mean, by the time you get to the end of the story of Joseph, There's been all kinds of evil committed. And what does God say as he shows his covenant faithfulness to Joseph and to the nations? Right? What they meant for evil, I was able to use for good. Right? That's what Joseph told his brothers. What you meant for evil, God was able to work together for for good. Right? That's steadfast love that treats people better than they deserve. Right? And so, take those three pictures. Jealousy. Uh, justice and steadfast love that pursues us and blesses and and refuses to leave us alone uh, down to the thousandth generation, which is a way of saying it doesn't end. Uh, right? What kind of painting or carving could say all that? Right? Nothing on earth is able to accurately image and represent represent God clearly and truly. And so this is where this leads to the gospel because I think this commandment comes with a promise. Israel had a dim view or an incomplete view of what God looks like, especially compared to what we see, right? They only heard a voice. But there was something in their tabernacle, right? So you go in the tabernacle and while the priest would go in and on the mercy seat underneath were the Ten Commandments, right? That was a throne, but it was an empty throne. So, so it's almost like God is saying somebody should sit there. Right? It's my seat, Yahweh, the Lord. There's no visible representation of what Yahweh looks like if you go in the Holy of Holies. But as you look at it, it is a throne. You have angels on each side staring longingly at the mercy God is showing his people. And when the glory of God came down, it, it rested on an empty seat. So who's supposed to sit there? Right? And you get to Isaiah 6. When Isaiah goes to church, to his surprise, God showed up. (laughs) The Lord, Yahweh, sitting on a throne as his robe filled the temple. what, What throne is he sitting on? The only throne in the temple would be the mercy seat. And so as Isaiah gets a glimpse of the, the consuming fire, the jealous God, the just God, the gracious God, summed up in those famous words, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, meaning he cannot be compared. Right. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke, and Isaiah just falls apart. Woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in a people of unclean lips, because I finally, my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. So what kind of image of God will, sh- will cause that reaction to you or me? <laughs> 
No mental image of God we come up with as creatures will, will be holy, 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 nor will it crush us with our lostness. Now, Isaiah fell apart because he realized as a priest whose job was to use his words, um, he fell far short of what God deserved. Right? He says, my eyes have seen the king and I don't love him as I ought and my very words condemn me. Thank God the story doesn't end there. <laughs> right, it goes on and says, One of the seraphim flew to Isaiah, having in hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar, which is covered with the blood of the lamb. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. <laughs> so Isaiah had an experience with God. He saw how he hated God. And he saw how God treated him better than he deserved. <laughs> and you know what the Gospels say about that passage? Who was Isaiah seeing? It says John chapter 12. Isaiah said these things because he saw the glory of Jesus and spoke of Jesus. It's John 12, 41. <laughs> In other words, Isaiah saw the fulfillment of the second commandment, which is Yahweh, who's become human, to show us exactly what God is like. So you do not have to use your imagination because it ties together those threads, right? God makes humans in his own image, and then the divine Son of God became human like us. And as Son, he perfectly images and reflects what his Father is like, right? Jesus says, if you see me, you've seen the Father. Right? So the, the logic of the second commandment is, don't you dare, Israel, bow down and make an image of me because my plan is to send my own image, an exact representation, for you to worship and bow down. Isn't that amazing? Right? I mean, the writer of the Hebrews goes on and says, long time, long ago and at many times, God spoke to our forefathers, right? He spoke through the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son the son whom he appointed heir of all things through whom he also created the world. And this son is the radiance of the glory, glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the word of the universe by his power. Do you hear that image language, right? Jesus is the exact imprint of God's nature. So when you look at Jesus and you see his compassion, as he heals the sick and gives sight to the blind and hearing to the deaf. When you see his heartbreak because he sees people without a, who are like sheep without a shepherd. When you see Jesus weeping at a funeral and then charge in anger at death, raising Lazarus from the dead. You're seeing what God is like. You're seeing his steadfast love. You're seeing his jealousy at work. Right? I mean, the God of the second commandment is so jealous for our affection, he became human and chose to die for those who hated him and were not keeping his commandments. Right? So you're getting to know what God is like through the cross. Right? Jesus gets angry. Right? When, you, when you see Jesus flipping tables in the temple, right? he's livid. Why? It says, zeal for my, house has, for my father's house has consumed me. 
right? He is so jealous that the nations would come and believe and trust and see God in Jesus, that he is scandalized that these uh, they would set up a market selling things in the temple, in the house of prayer, which is supposed to be set up for the nations. So you're seeing what God cares about, right? Worship, prayer, and the world, right? not just Israel. And so this is how we interpret this commandment as Christians. We get to go be wondrously weird in the world because we are committed to imagining God as he is in Jesus Christ. Right? That, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. And that's 1 John 1. Right? That's, what, that's what the apostles were arguing. We saw the one who was from before the beginning and we touched him. So that you might have fellowship with the Father, with, with Jesus, and with us, and that your joy may be full. Right? So you're, you're not left to the, the faulty devices of our own imagination. Right? So that's the gospel in a nutshell. When you, if you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus Christ laying down his life, raising from the dead. Right? If you see Jesus, you've seen the Father. How do we use this commandment then as a guide for us as Christians? This will be much briefer, right? Because we've seen nobody can mentally conceive God as he is. We need Jesus to help us, right? So Jesus shows us our guilt, our inability to imagine him as he is, which leads to gratitude for grace at the cross. But the commandments are also supposed to be a guide for our Christian life, right? So... That's what those long paragraphs in the larger catechism are all about that uh, I'm sure your brain can't process as we read them out loud, but they're designed for you to go home and meditate on them, right? So question 109 says, here's what the second commandment forbids. Imagining, recommending, demanding, practicing in any way or in any way approving any religious worship not established by God himself. Don't create any likeness of God as the Trinity or any one of his three persons, either internally in our minds or externally in the form of any kind of image or representation of a created being. Any worship of such created likenesses, as if God were in them or as if they were a means to worship him, right? it's not good. <laughs> it's, it's printed out in your bulletin. You can, you can check it out. Right? And it also says, hey, we should care about worship enough that we're willing to call people out especially other believers who are doing this wrongly, right? That we, I think that's, that's the first part that we said out loud, depending on your position of life and your, your freedom and ability to do so, it's, it's our job to say, hey, have you seen Jesus? This is how God wants us to worship him. Right? You know, at Presbytery this past, uh, it was a couple weeks ago, we actually, this commandment came up, right? Because we were interviewing a new pastor, He's, he'd already been ordained, so we're just we're doing the theological sniff test, right? <laughs> are, you, are you up to snuff? And one of the things he took exception with as a Christian is saying, I don't think we, we have the ability. I don't think he, he believed that it goes too far to say we can't uh, internally imagine what God is like, right? 
but then uh, the question was pushed back, right? Um, <laughs> the new guy basically said, it's not like I want to put stained glass windows, pictures of Jesus in our church. And so we all laughed because there is one church in our presbytery that has a giant picture of Jesus right behind the pulpit that's like the size of the wall. And he's very white, <laughs> right? So this is the, the, the remnant from their Baptist days. <laughs> right, and so it leads to that question, right? As Christians, do we have the freedom to put pictures of Jesus in books, uh, to, to watch movies, right? To have actors acting out like Jesus. And you will find Christians who say, absolutely not, because it's going to fall far short of who Jesus actually is. And you also find Christians, and I'm one of them, who says, because Jesus became human, we can use them as teaching aids. Um, right? There's different, there's different interpretations in our tradition. Right? But it, it is helpful to think about. If you look, if you go to a church with a stained glass window of Jesus, and he's, he's very much a white, well-conditioned European guy, um, it's going to be really hard to imagine Jesus as he is, as a Middle Eastern man. It'd be really easy to look at that image and get goosebumps because, oh, here's Jesus looking at me. Right? That's what people do. So it should at least give us reason to, to, to show caution. Right? When we were in Mississippi, <laughs> there was a stained glass picture of Jesus. And the way they tried to avoid breaking the second commandment is they gave Jesus six fingers. <laughs> right? So you can get really weird with this. Um, but it, is, but it is really pushing us to wrestle. Look at how much God cares about how you relate to him, only through Jesus, his son. Right? And if you have any kind of image of Jesus in a book, uh, as, as we use in our Sunday school materials here, I think a lot of them do, right? recognize that it's not a means to worship. It's just getting our imagination to picture what Jesus did while he was human, um, to lead us to the person Jesus. It's a teaching aid, not a, not a means for worship. Right. So, last, last point. How are you going to apply this as Christians? Keep little children. Keep yourself from idols. That's how 1 John ends. And you know how 1 John begins? It says nothing about idolatry for five chapters. It says nothing about making images for five chapters. <laughs> Until it gets to, we have Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and through him understanding, through him the, the true God who is eternal life. And then he goes and completely reorients the second commandment. You say, little children, those who are deeply loved, keep yourselves from idols. Right? If, you know, if you know how fantastic God loves, God's love is in the Son, why would you run anywhere else? to any other conception of who God is, right? So that, that atheist I started with, you know what else he, he wrote that's really, um, it's really profound? He says, I want a personal God that loves us all in a way that goes beyond words, a God who fills us with a reassuring magical light, a God who is the very expression of love so perfect that if you got it all at once, it would be to lose yourself forever in sublime happiness, sounds so close. Right. Now, what, what, what John is after, he's saying, in this is love. We've seen Jesus 
lay down his life for you, to be the propitiation, the sacrifice for our sins, so that you would see that he is love. And anyone who abides in God, well, the way you show that you abide in God is to love one another and keep his commandments. So therefore, if you know how loved you are as little children of God, idols won't be attractive. (laughs) That's the power, the expulsive power of a more powerful affection that you're going to love God's jealousy when you realize how much he loves you. Let's pray. Father, we just barely scratched the surface of what you have to say about worship. And so I pray for our hearts that we would, um, that we would see Jesus, uh, that we would be at peace uh, with what you have revealed about yourself in Jesus Christ, and that we wouldn't become passive. We would engage ourselves in that good work of getting to know Jesus. And so I pray for Hope Church, Lord, that our worship would be pleasing to you because we come to you, Father, uh, by, by grace, through, through Jesus the Son, because your Holy Spirit is at work in us. So give us a clear vision of who you are and what you've done. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.